Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Let us turn to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. We're coming to the end of our study in this book, and you might have noticed that we skipped chapter 20, which was about the rebellion of Sheba, and there's one more sermon in this series that will be next Sunday night. We come this evening to a difficult text, 2 Samuel 21, reading verses 1 to 14, a passage that narrates events which are strange and sad and that depict great suffering. As we read it, for most of us, we immediately have questions about justice and what God is doing in and through these events. We may wonder, why is this chapter important enough to be in the Bible? I hope to answer some of these questions for us, but before I even read it, I want to give you the overarching truth that we will see. Maybe it'll help you as we read to understand where we're going. And that overarching truth is this. The only solution for the awful problem of sin is the coming of Jesus Christ. The only solution for the awful problem of sin and the massive suffering and sorrow and injustice that results from sin is the coming of Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his atoning sacrificial death, his righteous kingdom that is being extended now and ultimately will come and cover the earth when he returns. And what we will see is that David's kingdom, as good as it was and as blessed as it was by God, David's kingdom was deeply flawed. It was flawed by his sin. It was flawed by King Saul's sin before him. But David's kingdom pointed ahead to Jesus Christ, David's greater son. If you don't get anything else, get that major overarching point. This chapter points us ahead, as does the entire Old Testament, pointing to the Messiah. And if that's the message of our text, then we must read this passage in hope. So we remember, remember that as we're reading some very dark and very sad things. And we have the great privilege, standing where we do in history, of reading it in light of its bright and its glorious fulfillment in Jesus Christ in history. And so we know 2 Samuel 21 and the entire book of 2 Samuel is not the end of the story. Jesus came in history, thanks be to God. And we're so blessed to live in light of that. And even though we still live in this sin-cursed world, and every day we hear and read about terribly sad consequences of the curse and of sin dwelling in this world and of Adam and Eve's fall, yet the kingdom of Jesus Christ has broken into history, and because of him, you and I may know peace and forgiveness and even true joy in this life, even though we live still in a very sad and tragic world every day. So let us read our text, 
Second Samuel 21, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth. And by the way, that's a different Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholahite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. May God add his blessing and reading to the hearing of his word. I want us to consider this chapter under four key themes. These are going to be our four points, four themes that we see here. The first is suffering, and then justice, and number three, atonement, and lastly, the great hope of Christ. Suffering, justice, atonement, and the great hope of Christ. 
Let's look at these. First, suffering. What do we see about suffering in our text? We see famine. We see the Gibeonites and what they went through. We see the sons of Saul and their mothers and what they went through. Look, look briefly at these pictures of suffering for us. We see in verse 1 this brief mention. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Let's not skip too lightly over verse 1. None of us, I would guess, have ever experienced famine. But think of the terrible conditions that are implied in that one terrible verse, the word famine, people dying of hunger, mothers unable to feed their children. You know, we see pictures from different parts of the world when famine has hit, and it's almost too terrible to look at for long. We really can't contemplate things like that too often in our lives, or we would just be sorrowful all the time. Having to watch your child waste away, malnutrition, disease, all that goes along with famine, a deep feeling of hopelessness, and and certainly questions about being abandoned by God in people's minds. So we have that brief picture for us of the setting for all that takes place. And by the way, we're not told here when in David's reign this took place. There are some clues in terms of the mention of Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, but we have entered here into the epilogue of the book, the the chronological arrangement of the book that ends with the end of chapter 20 is not there. So we're looking back in chapters 21 to 24 on highlights, or we might say lowlights, of David's reign. And so we're not exactly sure when this has occurred. There's no mention of it elsewhere, but it must have occurred during David's reign at some point. And then we think of suffering under the fact that the Gibeonites are mentioned here, and they're really a central portion of our text. Who are they? Well, we're told a little bit about them in verses 2 and 3. The Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, we're told in verse 2, but of the remnant of the Amorites. This is a people group who were a part of the original Canaanites. The Amorites were part of the Canaanites in a sense. And and these were the people who were to be utterly destroyed. We're learning in the book of Judges about that Sunday mornings. Uh, They were to be destroyed as part of God's righteous judgment on them. And we know that in Abraham's day, Abraham was told that the, the sins of the Canaanites and the Amorites had not reached fulfillment. In a sense, they were not ripe for judgment yet. But after 400 years in Egypt, then they would be judged by God. It was part of God's righteous judgment on that people group using the nation of Israel as his hand of judgment upon them. Sometimes he judges by natural disasters or miraculous disasters like Sodom and Gomorrah or Noah's flood, but this was a different kind of judgment wrought by the people of Israel as they entered the promised land. But as we've, as we've been learning, they were not completely destroyed. And the Gibeonites especially, we learn in Joshua chapter 9, had carried out a very shrewd deception. They had deceived Joshua and the leaders of Israel by pretending to have come days and weeks and months when they came to the leaders of Israel when Israel was invading the land. 
And they brought moldy bread and their clothes and their shoes were old and looked like they had been coming for a long time from far away and they wanted to enter into a treaty. And Joshua didn't inquire of the Lord. He just rashly made a treaty with them, made a solemn pledge to them not to destroy them. In a sense, they would be servants in the land. He didn't know that they were part of the Canaanites very close by. But God held Israel to this oath, and it's mentioned, it's mentioned in verse 2. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, and it goes on, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. That's Joshua, swearing before God to spare them. But Saul had broken this sworn vow. All we're told about why he did that, Saul had sought to strike them down, verse 2 at the end, in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. We're not sure what that means. Was he trying to, you know, the Lord had told them in the book of Judges that he wasn't going to remove them at a certain point, and that certainly by this time, by the time of Saul, they were not supposed to attack their neighbors and try to kill them and eradicate them. But there are different speculations. What else could have gone into Saul breaking this vow? Maybe jealousy over David's victories, and he wanted to show that he was a great leader and warrior as well. Maybe to obtain the lands of the people they put to death so as to gain political political influence. He could give those lands to supporters and things like that. We don't know. This is all speculation. But whatever reason, in his zeal, uh, he did this. He tried to eradicate them during his reign. Remember, King Saul reigned before David. Today, we would call this ethnic cleansing, a very serious sin. We might even use the word genocide And it was incomplete. It wasn't completely carried out because David is actually interacting with these descendants of the Gibeonites still. Whatever term we use, for whatever reason Saul did this, again we have to pause and contemplate the massive suffering involved. Just think if your family and your clan and your ethnic group was attempted to be ethnically cleansed like this. It has happened all over the world. It still is going on in the world, but what a terrible thing. I I think of when ISIS swept through Iraq, we kept reading in the front page of the newspaper about the ethnic group, the Yazidis, and how they were ethnically cleansed, and what a terrible thing it was, and just that unfolded for a period of years, and still that ethnic group is just suffering terrible terribly as a result of that. So, terrible suffering on their behalf. You can understand why they responded the way they did. They chose seven. They wanted David to pick seven of the sons, the descendants of Saul. We would have probably said, give me 77 of them, you know, probably. And it's just ironic that when David speaks to them in verse 6 and they respond, um, the narrator says, uh, puts in their mouth, that um, they say, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. You can see that phrase, the chosen of the Lord, just dripping with irony. You know, they would have hated King Saul, 
So they use the word, the chosen of the Lord, to show some of the feelings that they had. And then we have to consider another picture of suffering here, where we see in verses 3 through 9 and following the, uh, the solution. David makes this deal with the Gibeonites. Note, as we think about this, nowhere does the narrator tell us that David sought the Lord for guidance at this point. We're told that the Lord told him why this famine, this judgment was on the land. We're going to look at that in a minute. But nowhere does it say the, David sought the Lord and the Lord told him to do the, this, what the Gibeonites had said. And nowhere does it tell us that God commanded or even directed that seven descendants of Saul should be killed. And so we are left to wonder if this is right. It certainly seems to be a violation of Deuteronomy 24:16. That verse says, "Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sins." Now, commentators debate this passage and whether there was an exception here, whether it had to do with the sin of a king and it was on the behalf of the nation, or there are examples in the Old Testament of God himself judging and putting to death families and the earth swallowing up the offenders and their families. But human judges were not supposed to put to death children for their fathers. So we're left wondering, is this just? But again, my point is look at the great suffering. These seven descendants, two of them are sons of Saul, five of them are grandsons of Saul. Can you imagine five of your grandsons being put to death for something that you did? two of your sons. And we're told in verse 9 that they were hanged on the mountain before the, the Lord. It was this judicial execution before God. And the word hanged, we're not sure what that means. We think of hanging, you know, in the United States. It didn't necessarily mean that. It could mean that. It could mean that they were impaled. It possibly could mean they were crucified in some form. We are not clear here about the method that was used, but it would have been an awful scene. And just think of the immense personal suffering to their families, the unimaginable grief, what would feel like intolerable unfairness that they were chosen for this. Notice that David does not have the other Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, whom he treats so kindly. He doesn't have him put to death. And then we get to verse 10, and we read about Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And this picture is given us of this mother. She's the mother of two of them. Um, Saul has been dead for some time now. Her husband has been dead. She's a concubine. She was a concubine of Saul. And she takes this sackcloth and spread it for herself. And we don't know whether she used it to lie on it at night or cover herself up with And we read that she positions herself there where they were put to death, and the authorities made them stay hanged, however they were hanged. They weren't going to take them down. That was further punishment for them. It's implied here. But she 
camped there and did not allow the birds to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. What a scene. And commentators, again, debate. This happened, we're told in verse 9, at the beginning of barley harvest. That's April. The typical autumn rains would have been the rains that came in October, that kind of time frame. So if those are the rains that are meant, that means for five or six months, Rizpah stationed herself there with these decaying corpses, protecting all seven of them. It could have been a rain that was earlier than that, so it might not have been that long, but still, for some period of time, and she had to have people bringing food to her and things like that, but just think of that awful, tragic scene. A scene of motherly love mixed with this awful and terrible grief and loss. And finally, in verses 11 through 14, David hears of what Rizpah is doing, and he takes that, and, you know, the word has gotten out around Israel what's going on, and he decides at the time to take the bones of Saul and Jonathan where they were buried at Jabesh-Gilead, this town that heroically went to retrieve the bodies of Saul and Jonathan that were hanged on a wall after the battle. And at great risk to their lives, they brought the the bodies back to their town and buried them. But that's not where they should have been buried. David knew they should be buried where Saul was from. So he took the bones of them and these seven who had been killed, descendants of Saul, and buried them all with honor of some kind where they should be buried in the land of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish. And then we're told in verse 14 that God responded to the plea for the land. But I want us to just stop and think here about suffering as part and parcel of life on this earth as a result of sin. And if you try to untangle the web of sin and suffering that we have here, it just can't be done. How do you undo injustice? How do you do past, undo past sin? In doing so, don't you often create more problems and more sin? It's just life on this earth. As I read this, I thought of Tim Keller's book on suffering, which is just an incredibly helpful book. But the very first words of introduction in that book, under this heading, The Rumble of Panic Beneath Everything, Keller says these words, Suffering is everywhere, unavoidable, and its scope often overwhelms. If you spend one hour reading this book, more than five children throughout the world will have died from abuse and violence during that time. If you give the entire day to reading, more than 100 children will have died violently. But this, of course, is only one of innumerable forms and modes of suffering. Thousands die from traffic accidents or cancer every hour and hundreds of thousands learn that their loved ones are suddenly gone. That is comparable to the population of a small city being swept away every day, leaving families and friends devastated in the wake. He goes on to talk about this. It's interesting that in the introduction he eventually says, I want to help readers live life well and even joyfully against the background of these terrible realities. You read that and you think, how's that going to be? just starting to contemplate all that suffering in the world. But Keller, of course, is pointing us to Christ and the gospel. 
Well, that's the suffering. Secondly, and these are shorter points, God's righteous just justice. We have to stop and think about justice here. Romans 1.18 tells us about the justice, the judgment of God. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed, or it's, it's present ongoing tense there, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the trumpet call of the beginning of the book of Romans, of the doctrinal section of that book. The righteous judgment of God is being revealed every day. The righteous judgment of God is revealed. We don't understand it. It's unknowable as to why and how it manifests itself. And it's interesting that when Jesus is on earth and he's given examples of just terrible tragedies that take place, for example, in Luke 13, he's presenting with this, with this case. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he doesn't say, yes, they were judged because of their sins. He says this, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he's saying, don't jump to conclusions about why they died suddenly in this terrible way. And he says, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Scripture is telling us, don't jump to conclusions about why people are suffering and if it's a judgment of God being revealed. We only know that if God tells us in His Word about that. And there are cases that we know, things like the text before us or Noah's flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. There are cases like that, the exile, the Israelites being taken into exile. In fact, in John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples are trying to make judgments about this because they're presented with a man that was blind from birth. And his disciple asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Verse 2, this man or his parents that he was born blind. We know that They're trying to make sense of why someone would be born blind, have this terrible judgment apparently upon him. And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Scripture is telling us, be very cautious. If you hear someone on the radio or TV telling you that, you know, what's happening in America right now is because of this specific sin, don't believe it. He doesn't have that revelation from God. But we know that God's righteous judgments are being revealed. Only God knows why and how and what's behind it all. But here we're told in 2 Samuel 21, in verse 1, one of those rare cases that Scripture tells us specifically why. Because there is this blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. What happened was the righteous judgment of God. This famine was the righteous judgment of God that was bringing consequences on the nation now. One commentator writes about this. This is a difficult idea for us, that Saul's sin brought wider suffering on people long after his death. 
People's sins affect others. People's sins have consequences on others. You can't compartmentalize your sin. It will affect others around you and those who come after you in some way. But this example is just one small example of the overall picture that the Bible gives us of the terrible results of sin and the judgment of God abiding on this world. And if we stop there, that would be a very depressing place to stop. But thanks be to God, the Bible does not tell us only that. And that's where we come to our third point, atonement. Atonement and mercy. Verse 14, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Now, whether or not these seven deaths were commanded by God, clearly they are a picture of atonement. These seven died that the famine might end. But of course, it's, it is interesting that verse 14 that I just read about God responding to the plea for the land, and clearly people were praying that God would relent and raise this famine and take it away, and, and God did that in His mercy and grace. Interesting that that verse doesn't follow immediately after the deaths. It's interesting that rather it follows after this picture of Rizpah, this mother who did what she did, and after David, in mercy, finally honored the bodies of the dead and buried them. But doesn't this whole passage point to the theme of atonement for sin? And there are many passages in the Old Testament that point ahead, that picture atonement, the whole ceremonially sacrificial system point ahead to Jesus Christ. It's just so interesting that here they're, they're hanged on a tree on the mountain before the Lord because that doesn't that remind us of another greater son of David hanged on a tree on the mountain before the Lord except his death was the only death to truly accomplish atonement for our sins. And that brings us to the fourth point, the great hope of Christ. Sometimes it's hard to understand the meaning and message of a particular passage in the Old Testament unless we understand it as part of the whole narrative. So just take a minute with me to understand some of the markers in 2 Samuel that give us clues about the meaning we're finding here, that it's pointing ahead to Jesus Christ Remember I said chapter 21 begins the epilogue, these four chapters that are the conclusion of the book. But at the end of chapter 20, there's a summary beginning in verse 23. You've come to the end of David's reign, and it describes some of the major leaders of his kingdom. It says, now Job was in command of all the army of Israel and Benaiah, the son of, and it goes on and lists some names. But what's striking about that, if you know the book as a whole, here we have a summary very similar to the summary in 2 Samuel chapter 8 in verse 15, where there's a summary near the beginning of David's reign, again, listing a lot of the same men, a couple differences, but it begins with this verse. Now, this is the verse that we don't get at the end of the book, okay? I'll read chapter 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. 
That's a pretty big omission at the end, isn't it? We've seen David's life. David's life, it goes, his reign goes well for the beginning. Then he sins big time. And then Nathan comes and confronts him. And there are consequences. There's Absalom's rebellion, Sheba's rebellion. His kingdom is in disarray. He's still the king. But it's not the glittering city on a hill anymore. It's a very imperfect reign. Another marker is that this epilogue, chapters 21 to 24, are in a pattern. I'm not going to go into depth, but it's A, B, C, C, B, A. And the A's correspond to each other. Next week, Dr. Yerk's going to talk about chapter 24, which is another sin, this time not as a result of Saul, but David's sin in numbering the land and the atonement that had to take place there to stop the death that was going on. It corresponds to what we've seen tonight. But then there's B, David's mighty men. We, we, see, we see that at the end of chapter 21, and later on it comes in as well. But the center of the epilogue is what we would say uh, A, B, C, C1, B1, A1. That center of the epilogue is David's song of deliverance and David's final words. This beautiful and glorious psalm, it's really almost identical to Psalm 18, and then David's final words that point us ahead. And chapters 21 and 24 both show the problems of David's kingdom. The passages about the mighty men show us that David did not reign all alone. He had the community of God surrounding him. We would say he had the body of Christ if we were to read that back in. But these songs of David, these poetic sections, it's interesting in 1st and 2nd Samuel, which were originally one book, there are three major poetic sessions. At, at the very beginning, there's Hannah's song of praise. And then at the beginning of 2nd Samuel, in the middle of this one whole book, is David's lament for King Saul and Jonathan. And then there's David's song at the end. But I'm trying not to confuse you too much, but if you look At chapter 22, verse 51, the end of David's song of deliverance. This is what the last verse of chapter 22 says. The conclusion of that psalm, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And that would be offspring singular to his seed. Do you see how that verse looks ahead to Christ? And if you go back to Hannah's prayer, the very last verse of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, the last verse is, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There's the same references to king and anointed one. And David's bringing that same thing back at the end. And then in David's final last words, the center of those in chapter 23, verse 3, is that when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. And the literal translation of that would be more like this. A ruler over mankind, a righteous one, a ruler in the fear of God. That's a verse that likewise is pointing ahead to Christ. And so first and second... Samuel, overall, point us to God's promise to ultimately bring a kingdom of perfect righteousness and peace through Jesus Christ. 
We've talked about suffering tonight, and often you might hear about the problem of suffering. But the solution to the problem of suffering is often thought to be atheism. Why would God have such suffering on the earth? There must not be a God, atheism. But actually, that solution brings another problem, and that's the problem of goodness. If there is no God, then goodness, what is right, is a matter of opinion. And without God, every person will do what is right in his own eyes. And don't we see that acted out in our society? And haven't we seen that throughout the history of the world? That's just another way to talk about people autonomously seeking what they want and sinning against God. But the blessed truth of Scripture is that in Jesus Christ, God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. God made Jesus Christ to be sin for us. He is the propitiation for our sins so that that righteousness and justice might meet mercy and love on the cross of Jesus Christ. And the question for each one of us is this. As we live in this sin-cursed world, are we trusting God through Jesus Christ? Are we trusting Him for the salvation of our souls? Are we trusting Him for His purposes in our lives? We don't know about how His judgments are revealed, and we don't understand why some suffer so greatly and some don't. We don't understand why we've been blessed to live in a nation with such a godly heritage and such wealth and safety and prosperity while our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are suffering dramatically. Are you walking in trust in Jesus Christ today? Have you come to place your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the mountain of God, he was put to death that we might live. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of God. Some of it hard to understand, but Lord, please cement it in our hearts and minds that as we even read the newspapers this week and think about what's happening today, this week in our world, that we would worship you, that we would fall down before you, that we would thank you every day that Jesus Christ lives and is extending his kingdom in the world and has set his love upon us to bring us to you. Oh Lord, we ask that if anyone is here who hasn't come to trust in Jesus Christ, that they would see the beauty and the glory of Christ and call upon him and acknowledge their sin and give Jesus Christ their lives. We pray in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.